Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Go-to-market leaders need help too, you know. And you can learn from some of the very best at Compete Week 2023, powered by our friends over at Clue. Go-to-market leaders from ClickUp, HubSpot, Lacework, and more will be taking the virtual stage November 8th and 9th, sharing the tactics, tips, and strategies they're using every single day to bring their solution to market, and most importantly, knock their competitors out of the competition altogether. Two days of nonstop, industry-leading Compete content, all at Compete Week 2023. You can register today for free at competeweek.com. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I'm excited to be joined by Kaylin New. Kaylin is the VP of Marketing at Roller, an all-in-one cloud-based venue management software solution built for attraction businesses. With ticketing to memberships, parties to point of sale, and everything in between, Roller helps venues deliver exceptional guest experiences, boost revenue, and save time. Originally from Wisconsin, Kaylin is now based in Sydney, Australia, and I had the pleasure of working with her while she was the Senior Director of Product and Customer Marketing at the email and marketing platform Campaign Monitor and the full portfolio of the holding company Marigold. It's always good to catch up with Kaylin. You'll pick up on her enthusiasm and tenacity, both of which I envy. In this episode, we discuss what wine tasting can teach you about marketing, what to do as a marketer if your audience doesn't use or value digital channels, how to foster team collaboration and creativity, how leaders should balance transparency with authenticity, and why saying no to new customers can be powerful. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kaylin, thanks for joining me on the show today. I'm excited and honored to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, Devin. I'm excited to be here. So let's jump right into it. I would love to hear how you got to where you are today. And I think that's both personally, I know you are in Australia, but you're not originally from Australia. So maybe talk a little bit about that, sort of like where you grew up and then you found yourself in Australia. And and then also we can dig in, obviously, to your career and how you've moved from the email and marketing world over at Campaign Monitor and Marigold, and now your current position over at Roller. Yeah. So I think whenever I have meetings or interviews in Australia, people are always disappointed to hear my accent. They're like, oh, she's American. That's weird. Um, But I, yeah, grew up in Wisconsin, went to college there. Um, I did a semester abroad in college in Australia. And so that's kind of was my first um, experience with Australia. And um, as the story goes, my now husband I met um, whilst at uni. Um, And so we fell in love. It was a bit of a whirlwind romance. I was only here for a couple of months. I think people didn't expect it to last. Um, We lived apart for two years after that. And then I moved to Australia right after I graduated college, like the weekend after I graduated. And I've been here pretty much ever since. So I've been here for about 15 years, but I haven't been able to shake my accent. 
Yeah, well, you still now you you've converted into some of the verbiage of of Australians that you just said uni. I noticed. Oh, I know. I it's funny because working for like multiple global companies, I find myself as like the translator on calls where I'm like, oh, this is what they mean. College is uni. Uni is college. Like the boot of the car is the trunk of the car. And you know, I find my again, I find myself like translating between or having to like context switch in my head. Yeah, that's funny. I know I've worked, obviously, you know, we've worked together a bit when you were at Marigold um, and we had to work with a fair amount of folks in Australia and also New Zealand. Yeah. So I, I did learn yeah. a little bit, but definitely not uh, fluent in the in the various words <laughs> and accents over there. Yeah. Um, but let's chat a little bit about your professional career. So um, how did you get into marketing, into product marketing? Like, yeah, walk me through those early career yeah. days. Where did you get to now? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a very decisive person. When I make a decision, it's like I just run with it. So I kind of decided I took a marketing class in high school, and I knew from that class that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I just I loved marketing and advertising. It's just something that came really naturally to me. It didn't feel like, you know, I had to take a ton of notes and really study. Like it just, you know, really clicked and made sense. So I did marketing at um, in college, and then, like I said, I moved to Australia as soon as I graduated. Um, it was a bit of a, I was on a visa originally where I could only work for the same company for up to six months. So no one wants to hire you when you can, like you don't have longevity. Um, so I ended up working um, for a couple of dodgy places, I'll say, um, that kind of uh, kept me on longer than six months by kind of, changing things like paperwork in the background of which company I worked for. They operated multiple businesses. So um, that was uh, an interesting start to my career. But then once I got my um, residency in Australia, I landed a position with a direct to consumer wine company called Cellarmasters, which unfortunately is no longer around. Um, but I knew nothing about wine, like coming from Wisconsin, which is very like beer drinking country. I had no idea about anything. Um, but I was there for actually just over seven years and, um, really fell in love with wine. I took a bunch of like courses and became accredited, um, and definitely like a wine snob nowadays. And the one that gets past like the menu at a restaurant whenever we're out. But I kind of was doing product marketing, like reflecting, I was kind of doing product marketing there before it was called product marketing. Um, so I was doing like sales marketing at the time, supporting um, the sales team. But it was all about kind of telling the story of each brand of wine or each skew of wine of like, why should you buy this one? Why is it different from everything else? And really like diving into the story of the winemaker and what makes it special. And um, like, again, I was kind of doing that product marketing before I before it was a you know a real discipline um, and then we actually moved to the states for a year um, so my husband's a musician we moved to Nashville for a year um, thinking it was going to be forever we packed up everything in a shipping container had this big farewell um, moved to Nashville and that's when I started working for campaign monitor um, in customer marketing and product marketing specifically loved working for campaign monitor hated living in Nashville um, so in, we lasted a year and then we packed everything back up and turned around and came back to Sydney. Um, but just serendipitously campaign monitor has both a Nashville and Sydney office. So this is still pre pandemic. So, um, I was able to transfer offices and I continued the rest of my tenure at campaign monitor in Sydney, traveling back and forth 
every couple of months. And it just got to a point where I think, you know, I'd been at Campaign Monitor for about four and a half years, and we'd done a lot of acquisitions in that time, um, which was great experience. Kind of managing a portfolio of brands, I think, is something that really forces you to uncover the value of each brand and the personas and buy, like the buyer personas of each brand um, while maintaining some kind of consistency across the portfolio. So I think that that's a great experience for anyone to have. Um, but it got to a point where Campaign Monitor was, you know, about 2000 employees and um, being in Australia, the time zones were sort of trying after a while. I've got two kids as well. So doing a lot of early morning meetings, I was just ready for a change. Um, so started looking around and actually someone that I used to work with at Campaign Monitor was on the board of directors at Roller and he sort of introduced me to the folks at Roller. Um, and it happened really quickly. I think between my first interview and starting, uh, getting my, you know, signing the paperwork was like a week in between. It was a very wow. whirlwind, um, interview process. Um, so I landed the position as VP of marketing at Roller just over a year ago. And I think, um, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely loving it. It's a much smaller company. So we're about 120 employees, um, most of them in Australia. So not so many early morning meetings with the U S. Um, but just feeling like, you know, such a small company, like just things move really fast, can have a real impact. I'm really motivated by like seeing positive change and results and kind of progress. So, um, yeah, I'm loving it. All right. We're definitely going to dig into Roller, but a couple of things to pause on that I was trying to make notes in my head. One yeah. is the fact that you knew you were going to be a career marketer in high school after taking a class is mind boggling <laughs> for me. I, I remember people telling me that I would like marketing. And at the time I was studying photography and I thought I was like this creative person and I heard marketing and I just thought business boring. Now I've mm. been doing product marketing for over a decade. I now operate a business. I'm now obsessed with business. It's so weird <laughs> yeah. to think back. I've changed a lot. My mentality's changed. It's crazy that you sort of fell in love with product marketing so early. Other things I wanted to chat about. One, wine. So you said you went through like accreditations. Like, I guess, what does that mean? Like, what did you, what did you do? I'm just curious. Yeah. So um, it's like a globally recognized um, institution called WSET. Um, and so they offer sort of different varying levels of accreditation from like entry level through to advanced. And I think now they offer like a proper certificate and stuff. Um, so it's just varying um, degrees of both theory and tasting. So there's a tasting component and a theory component. You think like, I think theory. everyone going into it thinks that the um, tasting component is going to be the hardest because you're given a wine blind and you have this um, very specific framework you have to follow when you're evaluating it. So it's like you can only use certain words to describe the color and the nose and the, you know, the aroma and the palate. And you have to, at the end, you have to say, like, I think that this is a, you know, Syrah from Argentina that's X years old or whatever, you know, like that sounds like the hardest part, which it sounds crazy, but the more you practice and I, you know, had like, we had an in-house educator. So we had like classes through the day, through the week. Um, and the more you practice, you get, you really get really good at it. And so the, the tasting part was the easy part. The theory was the hardest part because when I did the advanced course, it was like all the old world wines of Europe. And like, there's a lot of rules around what you can and cannot do. And you know, they talk about, 
you know, the vines are planted on the steep hill with the wind coming at a particular direction. And how does that impact the end result? Like there's all this, like, yeah, the theory part of it is insane. So what's the difference between what you did and what a sommelier, if I'm saying that right, has to go yeah, through? Yeah, sommelier. Yeah, the sommelier, I mean, I don't know exactly, like, if they would do the same thing as what I did plus more, but their job is much more about, like, the food and wine pairing and how those mm. things work together. Um, so, you know, we spent a little bit of time on that, but definitely not to the extent of what sommeliers yeah. do. If you've watched, like, the documentaries and how insane... That's crazy. The sommelier courses, yeah. I mean, even what you just articulated that you went through is crazy to me, but cool. It's interesting. It's also like what yeah. you'd expect a, a great marketer to do is, you know, get super so really familiar deep. with the space and go super deep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so true, um, actually. Yeah. Anyway, so let's jump back into your work career. So I'd love to hear a little bit about like what you think you took away from your time over at Marigold and in the email and marketing software space and maybe like the portfolio business. It's just so different than what you're doing now. You explained a little bit yeah. earlier that role is smaller and you like some aspects of that. So I guess, yeah, what, what did you take from that that's influenced your approach to marketing over at Roller? Yeah, I think being at Campaign Monitor in the Marigold portfolio, I learned so much about email in, you know, just in general from end to end and the power of segmentation as well. And that was definitely like one of my first projects at Roller, um, you know, coming from a company that really put so much priority on customer communications and email as a channel and segmentation, um, realizing that that's not how it is at every company outside of the email marketing world. So um, that was definitely, again, something that um, I felt comfortable with could be like a first project that I picked up. So, um, you know, looked at our monthly email newsletter and I was able to increase our open rates and click rates like pretty significantly, um, which, you know, felt like a good kind of first like stake in the ground. And actually Roller has an integration with Campaign Monitor. Um, so I haven't like fully cut the cord. Um, I actually was speaking right. to one of the product managers at Campaign Monitor yesterday. But I think at Campaign Monitor, I was also our customer. Like I used our product to do email marketing. And so I felt like I like kind of what you were mentioning before about being so connected to the to the customer or the product, which is, you know, kind of what I did at Seller Masters as well. It was easy with Campaign Monitor because I'm not a super techie person, neither were our Campaign Monitor customers. So I felt like I was a good proxy for our customers um, using that tool every day to do our own marketing. That's definitely not the case with Roller. So Roller is an all-in-one platform for venue management for attractions businesses. So that's things like online ticketing, memberships, point of sale for like a trampoline park, play centers, water parks, things like that. So I don't need to use that software every day for my job at Roller. Like, you know, I definitely use it to get familiar with the product, to be able, you know, to talk about it intelligently, but it's not something that I have to use for my job. Whereas for our Roller customers, it's their mission critical software. It's everything, you know, if that goes down, then they're screwed. Yeah. So, um, I think what sort of helped me find that connection with Roller is that I am definitely our customer's customer. So I have two boys that go to birthday parties at these sorts of venues almost every weekend. So I've been able to kind of find that connection um, as our customer's guest myself, knowing that, you know, I'm the one that's booking a party online at the arcade or the laser tag place for my son's party at 10 p.m. So that's really helped me kind of find that connection that I felt like I was lacking when I first started. 
Can you go a little bit deeper on, um, so I know Roller provides technology for leisure and attraction businesses, but like, what's the full breadth of products that you offer over there? And then second follow-up, what are some of the challenges and opportunities in this niche? It's such a niche vertical that you focus on. Yeah, it is very niche. Um, So yeah, I mean, when I say it's all in one, it's really all in one. It's everything from online ticketing. So booking, you know, booking your tickets online um, for a session later in the week. Um, it's point of sale. So once you get to the venue, checking in or buying a ticket at point of sale, it's the membership software, um, the digital waivers. So if you have to sign a waiver to enter, a, you know, like a trampoline park, for instance, um, that's all done through the product and stored within the product. Um, we offer HQ functionality as well. So um, brands that operate multiple locations, we kind mm-hmm. of, um, we offer a product to suit that to help with sort of, you know, productivity and scalability. Um, but yeah, it's really kind of everything they could need all in, you know, reporting um, the guest feed. We have we have a guest feedback um, tool called the guest experience score. So that sends out like an automated survey after the visit to gather feedback to, you know, understand what people are loving, what people are, you know, where there's an opportunity. And we're just about to roll out um, a new feature around online food and beverage ordering. So being able to order, you know, from your phone through a QR mm-hmm. code instead of having to go up to a counter. So it's really inclusive, kind of, you know, everything they need. That's awesome. So what are some of the, I guess, opportunities and challenges in that space right now that you're experiencing or seeing? Yeah. So I think we have found that a lot of customers in this space are not online in the typical places that you would leverage as a marketer. Like the search volume is really small and niche for some of these places. And so like digital channels haven't been super effective as, you know, what they would be in another industry. Um, we found that this industry really values human connection and relationships more so than others that I've worked in. So events and trade shows are a huge part of our strategy and trying to kind of, you know, replicate that on a larger or broader scale, knowing that, you know, not everyone can attend a trade show that's in Orlando or in London or wherever it may be. So we're kind of thinking through how we can, again, like replicate that connection and relationship through local events, through meetups, and just making sure that like social proof is a huge priority for us. So, you know, customer stories and testimonials are um, one of the biggest priorities for the product marketing team at Roller. Um, Again, just trying to replicate that sort of referral and relationship when we know so I've listened to so many customer interviews and done so many customer interviews where they heard about Roller because the trampoline park in the town over uses Roller or mm-hmm. the biggest trampoline franchise in the US, which is Sky Zone, uses us. So, you know, it's a lot of um, looking to who someone else is using. And we've been able to find a lot of these sort of like niche Facebook groups where, you know, they're quite small, but they're really active and people are asking for recommendations. And so it's really trying to kind of navigate that, that those channels, I guess, and understand how we can best utilize them and make an impact. Yeah, we've been, I've been learning more and more about these like super niche vertical software companies. And I had someone reach out to me uh, to come on the podcast. Actually, he's a founder, founder of um, like Uber for lawn care, I guess is kind of how they describe it. And right away, I was like, I want to learn more about that. That's super interesting. I've definitely never experienced that sort of like marketing motion for uh, that, that, you know, that company might have. Um, Mm -hmm. So what about the pandemic? I mean, I know that probably, you know, you weren't at Roller at the time, but imagine that impacted your customers, Roller's customers significantly. There's probably shutdowns and stuff. 
and I think Australia in particular, you guys were super, mm, we were super locked in. stringent with, with your yes. COVID policy. So <laughs> how has that, how has that kind of changed that, that industry? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like you said, I obviously wasn't at Roller for the majority of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, hearing stories and, you know, how it kind of impacted people in the moment, but then the flow on effect of that as well. Like some of our customers were impacted more than others, like Wake and Aqua Parks, for instance, weren't as impacted because they operate outside on open water. But like trampoline parks, play centers, any indoor venue, they basically had to completely shut their doors for a time, just went to, you know, zero overnight. Um, but what we found is that many venues actually use that opportunity to upgrade their systems to roller. So I think moving a system that is this all-in-one, even if you know that maybe what you're using is not the best and there's you know better options out there, it's pretty daunt it's a pretty daunting task to move all of that software. And yeah. that sort of downtime that they had gave them the space, like physically and probably mentally, to to make the switch. Um, so we lot we saw a lot of customers upgrade from kind of old server-based systems to rollers cloud-based system in that time. Um, so we actually, yeah, ended up, you know, as a business weathering that storm pretty well. Um, but some things that I think kind of the flow on effects of that have been the online booking in general. Like there was a lot of places that just weren't offering tickets online. You either had to call or just show up. Um, which also means that it's hard for venues to manage their capacity, which means that it's hard for them to manage their staffing of do they have enough people? Can they, you know, have less staff on at that time? So online booking is something that definitely increased through the pandemic and has, you know, it's sort of waned a bit since the pandemic has kind of ended, but it's definitely, you know, well and truly more than what it was pre-pandemic. And I think also that sort of the online ordering through a QR code that I mentioned before, this feature that we're just about to roll out, um, you know, 52% of American restaurants now use QR codes for ordering. So it's something that's just gone absolutely gangbusters um, and something that, you know, is an experience that guests are used to and are expecting to be able to order from their phone in their own time, peruse the menu, you know, not have to be stressed in a long line, but then also means that it's beneficial for the venue that they, you know, don't need to have staff on that cafe counter um, and they can kind of manage their staffing that way. I think the other thing that we've seen um, increases membership. So having that like reliable income that you can count on month over month, um, which again, I think memberships in this industry is something that a lot of venues are hesitant to switch to for fear of kind of not knowing how to price it and if they're going to kind of, you know, screw themselves out of cash by, you know, charging not enough or too much. And so that's something that we're really focusing on at Roller of how we can kind of help provide that guidance of, you know, we've we've seen it done and, and um, we can kind of recommend how best to run a membership program, how to price it, et cetera. Yeah. So I guess the story is pretty similar to what most in industries experience. It's like, it accelerated a lot of the innovation, uh, the mm. pandemic, like there was the time to think back and digitize from the a business standpoint. And then also consumers are starting to book more online, QR codes, all of these things. It's interesting. Yeah. The membership component is really interesting to me. I'm trying to think of like, uh, there's a, a movie theater chain, Alamo draft house that, um, mm. I feel like I'm a member. I'm not sure if there's like a fee to that one, but definitely encourages I'm me. I'm taking $10 out of your account every yeah, month. You just don't know it, Devin. 
<laughs> possible, but I'm loyal. It's working. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I could, I could see that working, but I also am sure it's dependent on what their, um, attract attraction business is exactly right. Like there are some that you just don't want to go to, but once a year, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the, I think where we've seen it work really well is the trampoline park industry. Um, so there's a brand that we work with called Elevate um, out of the U.S. And they um, had tried a membership program. It just it wasn't super successful for them. After they worked with our team, they grew membership revenue like it was $600,000 in four months. Um, and they've also not seen that drop off of members after the like typical three month period. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. It's not. I think certain industries, certain verticals like trampoline parks, play centers that, you know, you're attending quite often, it works. Some of the other ones, maybe not so much like amusement parks, theme parks, that'd be more of like a, you know, season pass or, you yeah. know, a group, a group package or something like that. Yeah. Any way you can find reoccurring revenue, the better. We're seeing that even in like services businesses, I've seen consulting firms like offer, I don't know what they're calling it, but like there's like some recurring hours. Yeah, there's some like monthly thing. I, I don't think we'll get yeah. into that here at Fluvia. And then there's coaching, which is becoming a big thing. It just seems like everyone's trying to go after these software models of just reoccurring yeah. revenue and predictability, which makes makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, I'd love to pivot a little bit from um, your job over at Roller and into more of like your leadership skill set. And I've obviously worked with you when you're at Marigold. I've, I've experienced you as a leader. I've, I've seen how your team kind of, you know, operates around you. And I'd love to hear from your point of view, how do you try to foster creativity and adaptability in your team? Is it something that you're conscientious of or yeah, just what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think creativity is an interesting one. I always used to say I wasn't very creative because I'm not very artistic, but I actually had a two up manager described me as creative in the way that I problem solve like many, many years ago. And that really changed my perspective of what creativity means. So I guess I encourage my team and myself to, you know, think outside of the box beyond the immediate horizon. And I think one way that I try to foster this is space for that kind of blue sky thinking, which is hard to replicate over Zoom. I think we can just get so bogged down in the day to day and our Zoom calls are all just very transactional of, you know, the project that's in front of us. Um, but I try to get my team together. There's a couple of us in Sydney. So we get together a few times a month um, at a WeWork and then down with the rest of my team in Melbourne kind of once a quarter, trying to brainstorm a topic, whether it's, you know, small, medium or large on a whiteboard with post-its, like just to really and also, and for a few hours at a time, because I think it's really hard to like, for 30 minutes, be like, okay, we're going to be super creative and like think outside the box. And, you know, at 30 minutes, we're done. So trying to do it for like a morning or an afternoon to really like get into the groove of using your brain in that different way. Um, I'm actually getting the creative and demand gen team together in a few weeks in Sydney to go through like an end to end customer journey map. So like from landing on an ad on social through to where you land on the website, the form you fill out and like just what that experience is. Cause it's something that, you know, we haven't identified like big problems in that space, but it's something that touches everyone. I think we've got like, a, we've got a pretty small team marketing team at roller. So, you know, one dev, one copywriter, two designers, um, a VP of demand gen director of marketing that looks after product marketing. Um, 
and an events manager. And that's really it. And then we use an agency for SEO and paid media. But um, I thought like that could be something that could kind of, you've got different perspectives, building on each other's ideas. I think it impacts everybody in a different way. So I guess from a creativity standpoint, just again, trying to foster and allow for that time and space to kind of think outside of your day to day. And I think in terms of adaptability, my approach is really to just make, again, I said, I'm very decisive, I'm very pragmatic. So just making the best decision with the information you currently have available to you and not dwelling on it. Um, rather, you know, I think that could be my superpower, but also maybe my weakness at times as well of just like wanting to make that decision and move forward. But, you know, most things can be changed or updated. So I'm never going to fault someone for like making a decision based on what they knew at the time. Yeah, well, hold your thoughts there, because we're definitely going to go deeper on decision making. Um, the theme I always try to touch on. Uh, but yeah, it's, I agree with you on the bringing people together in person. You're lucky that you have so many team members around you in Sydney and that you can go to Melbourne, which I want to pronounce Melbourne, but I know it's not. Oh yeah, so. no, don't. That's very American <laughs> of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we we try to get together twice a year. We do get together twice a year. We're fully remote. I wish we could do more of that. Maybe in the future we're able to. Um, but I do agree. Even though I believe in the future of work being flexible and remote and distributed, I do think getting together in person and doing things not even work-related, I do think sitting down and doing a customer journey exercise is awesome. We've done that mm -hmm. ourselves. We've done our own positioning and messaging workshop and refined our website together in person. But then we've also gone on hikes. We've had two instances, one in Denver here where we went up to Boulder and, uh, and the other down in Austin. Insane heat, actually. I wouldn't recommend it, but... Um, yeah, going on hikes and just kind of like being together and um, having the opportunity to have random discussions, I think is a good yeah. way to, yeah, build Absolutely. team. And we, I think the, the luxury of our industry as well is that we use a lot of our customer research as like team building activities. So it's like, we'll yep. go to a venue and do laser tag, or we'll go to a venue and do ax throwing um, as a group. Um, which is kind of two birds with one stone. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So when we were in Austin, we had a uh, prospective client. We're still speaking with them and they have a product at, uh, it's actually a QR code type product, like you were mentioning that you guys are releasing, okay. but they purely fo purely focus on bars um, and, and I suppose restaurants, but it's mainly like a bar product. And their flagship um, is their flagship customer where they use all of their their products is in Austin. And so while we were down there, I carved out time where we went there, we went through the experience of using their product. We wrote up notes We and I sent their CMO a note, like here are all the things that we uncovered. And then we actually interviewed people too. I, I, did, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to do it, but I had <laughs> consultants do it. They walked do around it? and they were like, hey, can I ask you some questions about your experience using this app? So we've done that mixed a little bit of work in with the play. I love that. Kind of fun. Guerrilla style. Um, yeah, exactly. I think, I think the team appreciated it, The, but um, we're still talking to them. So you never know. Yeah, they haven't said uh, yet. Yeah, exactly. They yes. haven't. So what about challenges that you've had to overcome? Is there anything that comes to mind that you're sort of proud of that you've, you know, experienced a challenge as a leader and you, you were able to overcome it? So I think my leadership style is very transparent. I think maybe sometimes to my detriment, it has served me well in all the leadership role, roles I've held. And I've also been part of a team where leadership hasn't been transparent. And that's something that is just really difficult for me to um, 
deal with, I guess, of not knowing where you stand, how you fit into the bigger picture. Like I just, you know, so that's kind of why I've, ad I've adopted that leadership style, I would say. I think where this has sometimes become a challenge is when I don't necessarily agree with the direction of mm. the business or senior leaders. And in that instance, it's a really delicate balance of being transparent and authentic, but not, you know, throwing anyone under the bus and kind of disagreeing and committing. Um, I think I've got an example. I can tell you a story. Yeah, yeah so um, this is years and years ago. We at Cellemasters, it's a big part of the business is subscription based. So you order a box of wine comes to you every three months. Um, so you get four deliveries a year, whether it's, you know, all Shiraz, all Sauvignon Blanc or a mix, et cetera. Yep. And, um, I've done, I've done those. and they always ship me an extra box because I forget to cancel. Well, it's funny you say that extra box because that was the story I was going to tell. So there was one year where leadership decided to, that it would be a great idea to send an extra delivery for Christmas, which, so you were, you signed up for four a year. You're happy with your four a year, but this year we decided you're going to get a fifth Christmas delivery sure and it's going to be an opt out situation. So me and the rest of the marketing team were very concerned about that customer experience of we know that people don't open their emails. We know that people don't open their, you know, letters in the mail. Um, and at Christmas time where people are probably maxing their credit cards, you know, with gift buying and things like that. Oh, um, you were charging them. I thought you meant a free extra box. You mean they're oh, no. an extra box. I would have been on board box. with a free extra box. Yeah, I know. I was confused as to why that was a challenge, but now I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this was a fifth delivery of mm. the year that you opted out of. But we had, we kind of, we tried to fit like, this is a, this is, this really challenged my leadership because again, I want to be a transparent and authentic leader, but I just fundamentally disagreed with this decision, um, you know, expressed my concerns as much as I could. And it was just decided that we were going to move forward with it, um, that the risk was going to be worth the payoff. Wow. Um, so that was really, like I said, that was a really challenging thing to try to navigate that balance of being transparent and authentic and disagreeing and committing with what, you know, leadership had decided. So, um, you know, we, we did more, you know, we tried to over communicate with customers of, you know, this is coming opt out by this time through SMS, email, direct, um, let, you know, letters to customers. Um, and sure enough, the delivery came and the call center went absolutely bananas with complaints of people that had, you know, again, their credit card got maxed out and it's Christmas time. And it just set off this chain reaction of, you know, now we have to do pickups, which means all of our couriers that we're delivering have to go and pick up and credit. And it was just this absolute mess. disaster. Um, but again, trying to kind of rise above it as a leader through, you know, before it happened and then after it happened and, um, all of that, it was, um, that was definitely one of the more difficult challenges yeah. as a leader I've had. What a nightmare. Um, particularly that time of year, it's like, there's already enough going on. My God, exactly. that challenging for sure. It reminds me, I keep going off on these random stories, but this one is, this reminds me of, I was living in New York with all my friends and every year around Christmas, we lived in the same place for, I think we lived there for four or five years. 
we would get a box of Omaha steaks and fish. And it was like this huge box. It must've been like a 200 plus dollar order. And I think the previous tenant had set that up or maybe as a gift was given it and no one canceled it. So every year we would just get it at the door and we'd be like, it's this is awesome. Like I have no idea why this person hasn't canceled it, but we're going to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Did nice. it ever stop coming while you were there? No, it kept coming. So who knows? Maybe the still people getting that delivered to this still day. getting delivered <laughs> Omaha steaks on Christmas. It's crazy. Uh, man. Have you become, did you become an Omaha steak customer? Uh, no, no, no. Oh. At the time I barely cooked at all. Actually. I had luckily had two roommates <laughs> that, that did cook. Now I cook a fair amount, but back then, no, I, I, uh, right. didn't know what to do. And no, I've, I've not since had Omaha steaks. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's pull it back. So thinking about the theme of this podcast, embracing erosion, basically embracing change is sort of the, the concept. Um, do you have anything that comes to mind around, your ability to adapt either your leadership style or a strategy um, as things have changed, whether, you know, maybe it's the marketing industry or the vertical you're focused on has changed. Um, I've always tried to instill in my teams that constant is that, that change is the only constant. I think that's something that I really struggled with when I was early on in my career. I think, you know, again, being a very like decisive pragmatic type A person, I wasn't great with change, but luckily I've been able to kind of um, embrace it. Um, as I've moved through my career and then tried to really instill that with um, the rest of my team as well, that, you know, no matter where you are, what business that, you know, again, the only constant you can rely on is that things are going to change. So I think a good example of this is like flex in team size and distribution. I think this feels, this can feel like it's always in flux. I think, you know, as teams shrink, you add headcount, you move reporting lines. I think, you know, that's pretty common. Um, regardless, but especially in like the tech space where you jump on a, um, you know, trend or, you know, like product marketing, for instance, wasn't a role that existed years ago. And so now, and now we've got, you know, multiple product marketers at, in businesses. It's like, who used to do that work? So I think that kind of stuff is always in, um, in flux. And that ebb and flow is usually a reaction to, you know, what's happening in the market and the industry. I think you know, in saying that some of the hardest days of my professional career have been when a role is no longer required and redundancies have had to be made. But on the flip side, some of the most rewarding days are being able to work with my teams on their professional development plans, see those plans come to fruition, whether it be a promotion or a new skill learned or a project completed. And I think, yeah, that's something that I think most people on my team would say, but, you know, change is the only constant. Yeah. I think that's an important thing, especially marketing. I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but of all the disciplines, marketing just change every quarter. It's something else um, mm. that you have to be focused on. So let's chat a little bit more about decision-making. You referred earlier to your thinking on being able to sort of be iterative and not everything is permanent, but um, yeah, I would love to hear what your thinking and your process is in regards to how you make decisions? Yeah, I love this question. I think like problem solving and decision making is my superpower, both in my professional and personal life. I'm extremely pragmatic, as I mentioned before. I find I think that I'm able to find that kind of sweet spot making a decision where I have enough information to make an educated 
decision without waiting to tick every box and gather every data point, which um, I don't think, you know, is always the case, especially with some of the teams we work with, like product and engineering, um, it's not always the case. And just really being able to like weigh up what are the short-term and long-term impact and goals and progress over perfection is my mantra, which I think is one of your principles at Fluvio as well. I'm just, I'm so motivated by seeing positive change. And this approach, I think, just really helps you learn and iterate early on um, instead of, you know, waiting until everything's perfect and then you've lost all that time in between. Yeah. Have you found that being at a smaller company, you get to flex in that direction a little bit more, like you're able to make quicker decisions than in the past? Yes, 100%. I think that's like when I've been, you know, interviewing roles at, at for roles at Roller and people ask me, what do I like about Roller? You know, what's your favorite thing? That's the thing I always say is like, it just feels like we can be so agile. I think Roller's at this real sweet spot in its um, tenure where we're not, you know, a, a super young startup where we don't have product market fit. Everyone's running around doing, you know, a bunch of different roles, not really knowing what you know, to prioritize, but we're also not in that super mature stage where things feel really slow moving and there's a lot of red tape or process for process sake. Um, so yeah, I think at Roller, everything has been super agile and yeah. that's what I've just loved about it and being able to try something and if it doesn't work, you know, iterate on it. And I think the company really embraces that as a culture across disciplines as well. Um, so I feel really supported in that approach too. That's great. It's always frustrating when we have clients who are not able to commit and make decisions. It happens a lot. Um, and it's not always the big companies that you'd think. Of course, they usually are a little bit slower and there's more processes and people to go through. But mm -hmm. some of the smaller companies we've worked with can freeze instead of just moving forward and making a decision. And then three months later, when they're ready, the circumstances have changed and we have to reevaluate the recommendation that was put forth like three months ago. It's just frustrating. Yeah. Um, I will say that's been one of the better aspects of leaving a big company and starting a company is I can just make decisions yeah. in 10, 10 minute increments if I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think it's hard for startups or smaller, like younger companies to make the decision in terms of like, their product market fit and who they want to be for. I think, you know, most young companies just say yes to every customer that comes through the door and figure it out later. I think it's a real like tipping point in a company's um, tenure where they decide like, we're going to say no to some people and we're not yeah. fit for everyone. And that can, I get, I get that. Like that is a really, especially as like the founder um, or folks that have just, you know, been there since the beginning. I think that's a really, I can understand why people are paralyzed to make that decision. Yeah, it's funny. I just, I listened to a podcast with, uh, the, I think it's the CEO, founder CEO of Product Board. Uh, I think Product Board, there's so many companies that sound similar to that. Or Airtable, one of the one of those tools. And he he was asked, you know, does he regret what they did in the beginning was I think they just accepted all customers and they weren't super refined and like what his thinking is on that process. And he's like, ah, it's like an impossible question. Like sometimes you feel like you have to say yes and learn based on what people are doing with their product. Other times it feels like it's better to be super targeted and more rigid. Uh, very tricky decision on mm -hmm. that one. Um, April Dunford talks a lot about that too. And her approach, like her recommendation is to go wide. 
like work out where your fit is and, you know, then narrow from there. Okay. Yes. But using that, those early customers to learn where your fit is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As long as you're thinking about that um, and then going into that with intention versus it just being like, yeah, we have accept it any happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the key. I don't think that always happens. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Well, we're, we're coming up at 45 plus minutes, which is crazy. It feels like it has not been that long. Um, a couple of questions before we jump, I wanted to dig into one is who or what has had the biggest influence on you? Yeah. I thought, I mean, I looked at this question you'd sent across earlier and I thought a long time about it and I really think it's my dad. Like he was, he unfortunately passed away um, pretty suddenly a few years ago, but he was a Navy SEAL when he was younger and then became a biomedical electronic engineer for most of his life. He was just the most friendly, positive, persistent person and really instilled in me that if I worked hard, like anything was possible. Um, And I heard, actually, I was listening to an episode of um, How I Built This, the podcast a few years ago. And there was a kind of story fable that one of the guests told that really resonated with me about two frogs in a bucket of milk. Do you know the story? No, tell it. So the like fable goes that there's two frogs that fell into a bucket of milk. They're jumping, jumping, jumping. One of them just got too tired and sunk to the bottom. The other one just kept going, kept going, kept going until the milk turned to cream and the frog was able to stand on top of the cream and jump out of the bucket. And I feel like that's my, like, that really sums up my personality of like, I'm just going to keep going and eventually we'll get there. Like very persistent, hard work, laser focused. And like, we, you'll, you know, you'll see results in the end. Damn. What a good answer. Navy SEAL. I didn't know that. There's a lot of stories I know, but I think there's a lot of stories I probably never will know. He was the most like unassuming Navy SEAL. Like he was five foot eight, had this big, like, mario luigi black mustache (laughs) like just will hold the door for everyone strike up a conversation with everyone like you'd never know that he was a navy seal and lived in wisconsin i think that's another part like he's very unassuming which i feel like i'm kind of i can be that way too oh funny and lived in wisconsin i feel like a lot of navy seals i mean aren't you a navy seal is related to the water right it's usually a coastal yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was located, you know, he was in California and Hawaii and stuff when okay. he was Navy SEAL, but that was long before I was born. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just chose middle of the country. So no, no more coast. Well, that's where he grew up. And so oh, that's okay. where his family were. Yeah. Got it. Awesome. Well, great answer. So before we wrap, I would love uh, for you to have the opportunity to tell our listeners, like if they want to follow along your journey or hear more about Roller, or I know you're a product marketing influencer, like how can they follow along? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, both, you know, posting about Roller and um, professionally. Um, I sometimes will do like speaking events and things like that. So that's all, that'll just be all through my LinkedIn. I'd love for people to reach out if they want to chat. Well, thanks again for taking the time, Kaylin. You've been generous with it. Um, Always good to catch up. Yeah, thanks, Devin. Good to chat. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. 
As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time. Thank you.